There's no way out I've got to show them what I've become There's no doubt Got my back to the wall And I'm still hanging on There's no way Troubles in my life have been all the same With a strain in my mind getting hurt again There's a pain in my heart but it's just a game Gotta get over it, won't go insane Won't achieve anything while I'm down Don't wanna give out my heavy weighted frown I'm stopping this now, I'ma turn it around Heaven's on the ground, now I'm looking at the clouds Gonna make a change, like a change, bigger getting changed Gonna stay the same with my mind frame rearranged Gonna watch the blue out my mind and my eyes Was I blind in my mind? Cause that was old times Cause I'm starting fresh with a clear vision You can even spell my name in optimism Just track the M's and I and the P And then what you're left with is me Welcome to tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show. I am Zod Rider, and with me tonight, as always, is my partner in the Zod Rider Show forever. This is Victoria. Hi, Victoria. <laughs> Hello. How are you? And we, I'm doing great. And without further ado, we've got an amazing guest tonight. We have a Hong Kong legend, martial yes. arts practitioner, producer, director, writer, actor, He's done everything, and he continues to do more. We've had him on our podcast before, Mr. Dragon Dynasty himself, <laughs> Bay Logan. Welcome Woo-hoo. back to the Zod Rider Show. Sounds like I have a Chinese restaurant in Seattle. But uh, oh. yeah, live from front in Moi War, sunny, Moi, sunny scenic Moi War in Hong Kong. And great to be back with you guys. So, Victoria, to you what Robin is to Howard Stern, is that right? Yes, basically. I, I'm I'm here for for window dressing audio. Does that make me arty? Does that make me arty on the I don't know. Or one of the whack I don't know. What's my role in all this? Well all I all I, I know is whatever his name is, you know. All I know is I couldn't find my virtual socks without Victoria, so we gotta have. It's funny because Victoria is in Canada, I'm in the in Illinois, in the United States, and you're in Hong Kong. So this is an international call, 100. percent Victoria there, you got Victoria there. I've got Elizabeth here. I haven't been around so many queens since I used to work in theater. So uh, Victoria, Elizabeth. <laughs> So where so where to begin? I mean, you've you've since you've since joined the ranks of podcasting yourself. We were talking a little bit about that off air, and that and and that's amazing. You've had six episodes so far. I've listened to all of them. I I think my favorite was the most recent one you did, where you were uh, essentially teaching a teaching a class. I'm glad that you kind of um, uh, that you liked that one because it was a last minute thing. We were getting we had these 90 students from this school called Nyan Road in Holland come to visit our school, my, which is in my office as well. 
here in Hong Kong, and we've got a pretty big space, particularly for Hong Kong, which is not known for people having big spaces. But um, it was still quite a uh, an undertaking to get 90 people in. And basically, my te- my, my Sifu, Mac Sifu, Mac Gong Sifu, was teaching, physically doing a Hongar class in the other side of the school with 45 of them. And I was giving the lecture that you heard to the other 45. And in fact, we did I did it twice. We, we swapped. We did an hour with each group. It was huge fun. Uh, also tiring. And I did another lecture about two, two, I don't know, about a month previously. And teachers out there, whatever you guys get paid, it's not enough. Because, I mean, just me doing it one day left me, you know, kind of like exhausted and reaching for the whiskey bottle. So, have it out the people that do it every day. What's out there, honey? What? Shark? Is it really a shark? We'll get the kids out of the water. Oh. Wow. Oh, oh no. <laughs> you're, you're gonna be, there's going to be a Sharknado right here on our show. <laughs> well, we're on the show. Honey, I'm live. Go back to Liz. Sorry, guys. I was like, um, there was just a, a brief uh, concern because there was a shark sighted on the beach, and my kids. Okay, thank you. But we're all good. That might be a first. A shark attack live on. Yeah, that would have broken. Yeah, that's definitely a first. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely a first. I mean, we've had, you know, we've we've uh, talked about Sharknado on this show before, so that. (laughs) No, no, I don't want that happening in real. (laughs) (laughs) Those are Roger Corman movies. The shark, the Sharknados. Are they Roger Corman exact producers? No, they're not. They're not. uh, They're not uh, Roger Corman. But I mean, they just. They just as well could be. I mean, they're mm. um, the the director is. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever met him, Anthony C. Ferrente. Have you ever met him? I have not. He's, yeah, he's the director of the Sharknado. He's directed all four of the Sharknado films, and it's like they, it's become a, it's become almost like a, it's almost become like a cultural icon in and of itself. At least in the United no. States, I don't know. Daniel Zarelli is kind of a Sharknado kind of guy. He's a Sharknado kind of director. But I think he did one with Dolph Lundgren, but I think it was in a, an inland lake, and it was a shark in a lake. And uh, the one I'm looking forward to is Meg, the one with Jason Statham, which was shot in New Zealand and in uh, China, which I can relate because I also shot a film in New Zealand and China. So yeah, we yeah, and that's a, that's a film that we have to talk about because I've been oh. I've been dying to talk to you about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny. I love that movie, and I feel like that movie is the perfect companion piece to the original film. And if sequels are made, it, it just made made sense, you know, the direction that you guys went. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't read any of the books or anything, so I don't know how you know, faithful it is to the source material, so to speak, but I definitely enjoyed enjoyed the film. The books are incredibly complicated, and they're only highly regarded in Taiwan, which is why Ang Lee particularly loved those books, but they're not. To my mind, they're just, um, they're not like the equivalent of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, these wonderfully written pieces, but they've got fantastic ideas, and it's a huge, very, very imaginative, and there's like, I think it's a bit like that, film The Beautiful Mind, you know, where you look at the storylines and the characters and if you're like Ang Lee, you're looking at book four Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you can see the outline of the story you want to tell and that became the film that he told. Obviously our movie, 
What's interesting about it is I found this with a bunch of films that I've done previously. I mean, Gen Y Cops being a prime example of that, where the online community took up arms against that specific film. Uh, and even Protector, which I worked on a bit, the Tony Jaa movie, it was the same. But when you actually went to the film's country of origin, it was well-received. And when you actually ever played the film for an audience or a global like mainstream audience, they really had a good time. And I do think that there is a, uh, of course, people are free to critique and like films and not like films as they desire. But there's definitely, to my mind, a difference between the entertainment that audiences, regular audiences worldwide want to see and the, the films that the online pundits think they should see. Um, and I think we fell foul of that because people were like critiquing it, that we took a long time to do a sequel, that our film was in English, that it was not an arty film. And we always, even when we were making the movie, what we would say is we're making Aliens and Ang Lee was making Alien. So that you didn't, you couldn't do a slow, elegiac, poetic, quiet movie like he did the first time. You had to do something different. And uh, people either people either bought into that or not. I mean, I was reminded a lot of um, when I met Stephen Burkoff, the British um, actor, playwright, and you know, force of nature. Stephen was saying that he, um, when he first came to the West End, he felt when he went out onto the stage, there was a huge statue of Laurence Olivier. Before you could do anything new, you had who was the greatest, perceived to be the greatest stage actor of his day. So you had to push that off the stage. Somehow, you had to forcefully push it off the stage. And you have to be kind of extreme to um, create a space to tell the stories that you want to tell. And that's how we felt with Crouching Tiger 2, which was if you actually just stood there and um, kind of like just tried to copy the first movie, you'd come short, but you had to push the original film off stage and do something new. Maybe, maybe we pushed a bit hard in some areas, but... As I say, people like the movie. And what's funny is when I was in New Zealand preparing the film, we were at Peter Jackson's post-production studio in Wellington. And I was there with the director, Yin Wah Peng, who'd actually directed Crouching Tiger One and The Matrix and a bunch of other movies. He's a legend, obviously, in the martial arts film world. Mm -hmm. Directed The Master with Jackie Chan. I'm sure your audience is familiar with his work. But anyway, so I'm there with Yin Wah Peng and the rest of our team. And I go through the coffee shop area of Peter Jackson's place and I run into Ang Lee the director of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, what are the odds? And um, so I walk up to him and I'm like, Ang, and he's like, oh my God, white guy from Hong Kong. And I'm like, yes, how are you? And what are you doing? And he was developing another movie that he's going to be doing. Um, and that's his movie, so I probably shouldn't talk about that one, but he was preparing something else that he wants to do. And then um, he, uh, I told, he asked me, what am I doing? And I'm like, uh, uh, blah, blah, uh, well, I'm doing Crouching Tiger too. And he jumps up and he goes, oh my goodness, isn't that with you more paying? Or Bat Yeah, Bat Yeah, as we call him. And I went, yes, and he's in the other room. So Ang Lee comes through, sees you more paying having his lunch. you more paying does a double take. Oh my God, it's Ang Lee. And then couldn't have been more supportive and more nice and more easygoing. And then we walk back, Ang Lee and myself, towards the coffee shop area. And I said, you know, you've given us some awfully big shoes to fill with this movie. And Ang stopped in his tracks. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, you know what, Bay? If you think that way, you can never do anything. You just have to have fun with it. Just have fun with it. And I thought that was the only blessing we needed to go off and try to make a fun, lively, bright action movie with larger-than-life characters. I mean, like anybody finishing a movie of that scale 
particularly a studio film, I look back and I go, well, I wish we could have done this different or that different. But at the end of the day, every time the audience... Uns I remember when I brought the film back to Hong Kong, we showed it to Donnie, Donnie Yen, and his wife and family, and my family came in, and we had a screening, just all of us. We had the best time. None of us slunk out going, oh, my God, you know, uh, we besmirched the legend legacy of Crouching Tiger and we'll never work again. Same thing when I showed the film to Michelle in Beijing. Everybody came out going, what a fun, bright, good-looking movie. And you felt the same way. I sure did, yeah. I, I, loved, I loved every minute of it. I could not wait for it to come out. And when I seen that it was, you know, the first time they announced the trailer, they showed the trailer and everything, I believe yeah. you were actually in... New Zealand, or headed to New Zealand when we did the first the first time we had you on this show for Crouching Tiger Two. Well, yeah, that's true. I was there for love New Zealand, amazing place, and I would love to work there again. And it was great. Um, and we also had a good ten days in Beijing, um, but it was about a year later. So in the meantime, I'd made Lady Blood Fight. I don't know why this. It's something in in my my nature of my doing films is there seems to be this huge delays. I don't know. It's happened time and time again to me in my career where the film is the production takes a long time and then it um, it's a long time before it's released. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of the, a lot of your listeners are going, well, but it's easy. That's easy. It's your fault. And I'm like, yeah, sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And uh, it, it's just one of those. It's odd. You get kind of patterns of repeated things. Mm -hmm on movies some of them i don't even want to talk about because I'm, I'm scared like dagal i see dagal i see basically means if you say it will happen again but there's um a couple of things that have happened repeatedly on movies of mine where i'm just going there's no rationale for it but it's just i guess it's like an albatross like in the you know the rhyme of the ancient mariner it's like this something that follows you from film to film like karma maybe and you can't get away from it but there's always been long delays i don't know quite why that is but yeah no i i went through a period when crouch like first came out the response to it online was was very strongly anti and then when i and i, I then kind of like steeled myself to well people don't like it but then as i've traveled the world since then when i spoke to people who like this kind of movie and particularly native speakers who appreciate the fact the film was in english they've really enjoyed uh, uh, enjoyed the movie and had fun with it and uh, you know i i mean it's very early stages but um you know i'd love to do a third film so there's no reason not to it's just you know the stars have to align and there's no reason we could not could not do a third film in the future i was going to ask if maybe they would have you direct the third film uh well that i think is I, first of all i would not accept directing a film of that scale Except firstly, even if they asked, they wouldn't offer me. If they offered me, I wouldn't do it. Um, but I would certainly love to be involved as a producer, as a creative producer. And I'm involved now at the, at the early stages of conceiving, doing something. So we'll see where we go with that. But um, I definitely would love to be involved with the third picture. And I always feel that, you know, it's like um, I did uh, one, of the, one of the movies that I'm proud of and happy with of my own movies is a film called... Borderland, which is released in America as Covert Operation. And that was interesting because we shot it at the exact same studio in China where previously I'd shot a film called The Blood Bond with Michael Bean. And The Blood Bond was, a, I thought, a, an occasion when, you know, basically Michael ran away with the movie and the movie didn't come out as good as I hoped it would. Um, I didn't produce strongly enough. I didn't, you know, impose my will on the film enough 
that I should have done to make it the film I wanted it to be. And I had all the cards and I basically gave a lot of leeway to Michael Bean to do what he wanted to do as director. And that was, it was a mistake. And then three years later, I came back with a really good director, a good lead martial arts actor and me on top form. And we did Borderlands, which I don't know if you've seen Borderlands. Uh, not I yet. Have not. No, not yet. I have not. Check it out. It's a movie I think has great merit visually. My, the only shortcoming is the director's French, and he was very precious about... He was writing, writing in his second language. He was very precious about the script. The script probably needed a polish by me or somebody else, at least, who was a, a writer writing in his first language. But we didn't do that. Other than that, visually, it's stunning. And uh, the director, Mathieu Vestler, is so talented, and the DP, Vincent Vieira de Baron. You can tell I've worked with a guy I can, uh, closely to mention his name, Vincent Vieira de Baron. The fact <laughs> that I can even say it. And Sadina Balde, who is the lead actor and the action director, were all amazing. And you know what's weird? I don't think any of them have ever, none of them have worked since. It's, it's a weird industry. Guys as talented as that are not working. I don't know. I don't know what's real with the world. But anyway, but that was a case where I came back to the same site of what I considered a great failure and had what I consider a great success. And a lot of the times people say, what do you think about this person's critique or this person's view and whatever? My position on it normally is I, I know what's good or bad about a film without anybody on, you know, kind of IMDb telling me. Nobody needs to tell me what's good or bad about my own movies. I know. And I know what I did well and I know what I did, did not do well. But what's great about life is, I often wonder, one version of heaven would be if you wake up and you can actually go through your life again undoing the mistakes you made last time, you know? That would be heaven, right? You go back and... <laughs> or hell, depending on how you look at it. So for me, well, it depends on if you made as many mistakes as me. But uh, I, I look at Blood Bond and I go, okay, that I got to come back and kind of remake the film three years later and then do a really good, what I consider to be a really good job of it. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really interesting thing. So in a way with Crouching Tiger, if there was a third film, in a way you could go back and go, and by the way, I think Crouching Tiger 2 was a really well done movie. There, was, there were aspects to its creation that had I got it to do over, I would go, okay, based on my unique experience, I'll do this rather than doing that. But that aside, I definitely think we left a good, strong foundation to build on to do an international Crouching Tiger. Whereas, yeah, I mean, the first film was obviously Oscar-winning, hugely regarded, well-regarded, well-reviewed, critically acclaimed foreign language movie. But our movie was seen by more people than have ever seen a wuxia or a martial arts movie. Yeah. Given the fact that... Yes, yeah. And the fact that it, you know, it made over 50 million U.S. at the theatrical box office in China before going on to, you know, TV and video in China. If you put the audience in China, which is what 1.8 billion people, and you put the Netflix audience together, it was the most widely seen movie. I'm not saying it's the best, but it was the most widely seen. That gives you a strong platform to do another movie in the future. And, and the thing is, it's going to have its share of big fans like myself it's not just see i kind of always feel like when you look at the internet and you see like majorly negative comments and stuff by people that a lot of times what you see on the internet is the vocal minority and then if you go around and you actually ask people who have who, who look at the movie and see what and see what it's about and actually enjoy it and enjoy it for what it is and love those kinds of movies it, it's a very different it's a very different dynamic. So, and, and there has to be different takes because, I mean, you don't want 
the same thing again and again and again. I mean, that's the whole point of B is you've got to put your own polish on it, so to speak. Otherwise, I'm just watching the same movie. (laughs) I agree. I agree with you. And I think, you know, a lot of times I read critiques and people actually review the movie they think you should have made or the movie that they think they could have made had they were in control. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The movie they could have made. (laughs) I, I went to see, for example, Ghost in the Shell. And all the reviews that I read and all the critiques and all the things that made that film not perform as it should have done was about the casting. But then I look at the whole fil- the film as a whole. I thought it was one of the most visually exciting movies since, you know, like a Blade Runner or, uh, you know, Fifth Element. I'm trying to think of the vi- really visually stunning. Well, I mean, the movie. original source material for Ghost in the Shell is also very visually stunning and homages Blade Runner and all those types of films. So you would expect that from a live action adaptation. So. Did you, see the, did you see the new movie? Do you see the the, the live I, action? I one have that... not. I I have no. not seen it yet. No, I have not. I I've been. That's I want to. I want to see it, but it's not doing very well in the theaters, at least domestically here right I, now. So I don't know. I, thought it was, I couldn't understand this because to my look, when when you the biggest critique that I could read was basically because the character in the original manga was Japanese. When a Hollywood studio remade the movie, they were meant to cast a Japanese or an Asian person. Now listen, when, for example, my friend Benny Chan bought the rights to Cellular, which he remade as Connected, guess what? Cellular had Jason Statham as the bad guy. I'm not sure who else was in that movie, but they were all white American actors. When he remade, when Benny made Connected in Hong Kong with uh, Kwok Pusing, and not Kwok Pusing, with, uh, with uh, Goodenlock, and all the other people, he had all Hong Kong actors in it. When an Indian company bought the rights to that MMA movie, uh, Gladiator, they had all Indian people in it. When the Japanese buy remake rights, like when they remade Unforgiven with Ken Takakura, not Takakura Ken, um, with, uh, oh my goodness, who was the guy who was in Last Samurai? Uh, not, not Tom Cruise, the other, Ken Watanabe. That when they remade, uh, when they remade um, Unforgiven with Ken Watanabe, it had Japanese people in. And nobody said, how dare you make Unforgiven in Japan as a samurai film without using Americans? Why don't you have, why don't you have a white guy in there? Because in the original, it was Clint Eastwood. And nobody said that you had to have white people in, in the Hong Kong version of Cellular or white people in the Indian version of Gladiator. But for some reason, when Hollywood buys the remake rights to a Japanese manga, they're not meant to put white, potentially white or non-Asians in the lead role. And I couldn't understand that. I, could underst- I, couldn't under- I can understand why Asian Pacifics want to be better represented. I couldn't see in this specific case, when you buy a property to remake in Hollywood, why you should be attacked for casting a blonde American woman when in the country of origin of all these films, when they do a remake of an American movie, they always cast locals and they film in the local language. So I, it seems to me to be a double standard. I mean, maybe because Hollywood broadcasts to the world. I don't know. I don't. I don't get it. It was even with like with, with, when Iron Fist came out. They were going on the original comic book. Iron Fist is a white guy. Now that show had its issues. But I'll tell you, casting an Asian actor or a Eurasian actor was not going to solve the problems. Yeah, the, right. be, the best thing <laughs> I about agree. Oh, I agree. The uh, problems were in the writing and the direction they took some of the storylines for Iron Fist, not in the choice of actor. The other problem you have, if you're Netflix, your bar is set so high when it comes to the writing with House of Cards, with Orange is the New Black. 
with Daredevil season one, that you've set the bar so high that audiences are going to come in sometimes with an unrealistic expectation. I mean, um, we did two seasons of Marco Polo uh, with, with Netflix. I never felt on that show that uh, writing wise, it was house of cards level, but it found an audience anyway. And, and Iron Fist found an audience anyway, because, Apparently, a lot of people goes to what I was saying at the top of this about the fact there's a huge discrepancy between what audiences like to entertain themselves with and what the pundits tell us we should be watching. And there's a big difference. And I think Ghost in the Shell and Iron Fist are both examples of that, that people could be entertained by these shows and, and this film. Um, and the reasons that are stopping them seeing it aren't not the reasons that they really shouldn't watch it. If you really think the writing is no good or you think in Ghost in the Shell, you think the script is, is clunky in places, which it is, then don't watch it. But don't watch it because you think you're making a political statement by not watching it. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Exactly. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree. Everyone, you got to have an open mind and make your own decisions. It's, we, we take too much from everybody else and just assume that that person knows better than I do. And, and you know, I know what I like to like watch and i will watch that it's easy for me to have an uh, an open mind because i've got an empty head but other people (laughs) probably other people struggle maybe i don't know it's easy so anyway i'm really happy you guys like crouching tiger i'd love to do a third picture or, or to do more with the franchise if there's a way to to move it forward so you know that's i love i love how you got around using italian fat I really, I, I really thought it was great how you just kind of silhouetted the character and, 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 you know, referenced, you know, and you still referenced. You didn't pretend like the character never existed. The character actually had a big role in spite of him not even being in the film. I thought, I thought that was amazing what you guys did. Yeah, no, it was like, uh, I, I thought there's some shots, and there's one shot particularly when we had the Cav- the Limu Bai character, the Jain Fat character on that mountaintop on the South Island doing his uh, his uh, sword form, and the camera goes around. I think that's just some stunning work. Uh, visually, I mean, there's some stunning location work. It's very difficult to go on location on um, in New Zealand and not come back with something stunning. I mean, there was one day when it's a whole the whole probably my favorite scenes in the movie for me are the scenes when um, the um, there's uh, my friend Suya Chang, who's playing the what was essentially the Zhang Zi character from the first film, who's had the baby, the baby boy's been stolen, and then she's raising this little girl, Snow Vars, as her own, and she goes to fight with Jason Scott Lee's character and comes back to this hill to die, and there's this incredible tree, and these, um, and it's like, and, and, and kind of like mountains going off into the distance, like these green hills, and I was there for that. I was there for the whole shoot, but I specifically remember being on Splinter Unit for that whole day and just being on the location before sunrise beneath this massive ancient tree that was kind of like production designed by God. And then the sun would came up and you, you saw the, scar, the stars pale and the sunrise and it just going across this clear blue sky and working beneath that sky with... Was, uh, Morton Tilden was helping us that day and Suya and myself and a small unit, and a really good um, Steadicam operator, and the little girl who was playing Snow Vars, and just working towards night, and then the stars coming out, and the sun setting, and it was just incredible. I mean, how often in life, you know, it's like, um, it all seems so limitless, but in fact, you know, how many times in your life do you get that kind of moment? And that's what I love most about filmmaking, is that it takes me to somewhere like that, Sunset Station, to be with people, 
people and how can they work between sunrise and sunset. Uh, that, that's, that sounds like it was fantastic. Yes. Amazing experience. I, I was giving a lecture the other day and I was playing, like, I guess, my greatest hits. And I played that clip. Can you guys hear me okay? Uh, yeah, well, you were kind of cutting out a little bit there, so, like, you got cut off with the last thing that you were saying. Um... Mm-hmm. Phone unit. But I was just saying, you know, the, 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 what, the great satisfaction I get out of filmmaking is perhaps not what people think, but the fact that you go, you, you can go somewhere like that location and have that experience with such amazing people that you treasure for your whole life. And I know I would never have been there, would never have had that moment, never had those moments, but for the fact that I was making a film. And what's curious about it is you can have those amazing epiphanies as readily on a bad movie, in inverted commas, as on a good movie, in inverted commas. So that's why when people come up and chastise me and say, oh, I didn't like this movie you made. By the way, I always say to young filmmakers, when somebody walks up to you and says, I saw that movie you made, I didn't like it. The important part of that sentence is, I saw that movie you made. Not the movie you talked about making, not the movie that you discussed online with your friends, not the movie that you shot for YouTube, but the film you made that was playing in theaters or on Netflix or on DVD. People saw it. If they like it, great. If they don't like it, nothing you can do about that. But what's important is the journey the film took you on as an individual. And I think if you stay focused on that, you can have a happy career. But if you're hung up on reviews and box office, then, yeah, you're going to end up drunk and disillusioned. Absolutely, mm-hmm. um, you you've got uh, now you've got L- Lady Blood Fight. When is that being released? Well, Lady Blood Fight comes out in May, and it's been a very and it's got a brief theatrical, limited theatrical in um, uh, in America before it goes to the other platforms. And I'm very happy with the way the movie turned out. It was a interesting. Uh, Chris Naon, who directed the movie, very much in the auteur um, school, which was this French school where they basically believed that the auteur, the guy, that, the director is the author of the film, which for me as the producer who wrote the script was, was difficult to sometimes to deal with the fact that Chris believed himself as being the auteur of the movie. But he's a fabulous um, visualist. I mean, his way of shooting, there were some scenes that are between Amy Johnston, who's this amazing actress, who, oddly enough, she'd been Scarlett Johansson's stunt double, which is talking about Ghost in the Machine, Ghost in the Shell. But is it Ghost in the Shell? It's Ghost in the Shell, right? Yeah, Ghost yeah, in yes. the Shell. Ghost in the Shell. I was saying Ghost in the Machine before, Ghost in the Shell. But uh, that's, the, that's the, uh, the police album. But uh, anyway, she, she had been a stunt person, and I was, like, with the very Hollywood bias going, well, geez, does a stunt person have to star in my movie? But then she was an, is an amazing actress. I mean, just so gifted. Um, so that's your that's your lead act that's your lead actress for. Um... You should be everybody's lead actress, not just mine. And uh, she's so awesome. And then we had scenes awesome. with a wonderful called, called Muriel Hoffman, who's a fantastic um, actress in Hong Kong, who plays the teacher. And Chris shot some stuff in in this old uh, ancestral home at Ditong in Yunlong, which is just so great. And it, it it echoes back to I remember I showed uh, Muriel. Sin Lo Yao one, Chinese ghost story one and two before the movie and said, I want you to be like Wu Ma's character in this and she totally hid it and he got that stuff really great but um, 
No, I mean, like, if you go back over Chris's career, you can see like that he did one movie for Luke Besson, one movie for uh, for Bill Kong, and he's just done one movie for me. And I think that's, I think there's a reason because you deal with him, and you you have a guy come in with this French perspective. The French hugely respect. Well, it's funny they respect the writers, but uh, they uh, there's this tradition that the the director is the auteur. So Chris was the kind of the auteur on this movie. So I suppose. The stuff that he wrote that I liked, I liked a lot. And there's a few things that were different to how I thought. But you, maybe as an audience, you can't tell. I've got such a unique perspective on it. As an audience, you can't tell. Everybody who's seen the movie has really enjoyed it. It's another one of those. It's like people who see the film as opposed to a few of the early critics, where people who actually watch the movie really seem to enjoy it. It's very bright. It's the first time you've had, you know, hot uh, women in a martial arts tournament shot at this level. I think there have been some very low-budget movies, maybe, that have mm. had a similar... But this one is a cl very classy-looking production. Voltage gave us decent money. I think we shot Hong Kong very well. And um, it's about something. You know, I always look at it, in my mind, Crouching Tiger... It's like a trilogy. Crouching Tiger was part one of my trilogy. And Lady Blood Fight was part two. And now I need to do a futuristic film to be part three. It's almost like... Uh, uh, you know, a period film, a contemporary film, I need to do a futuristic film of mine. No one else sees it that way, but in my mind, it feels a bit that way. Because now, is there that were what's, now, is that what Snowblade is going to be? A futuristic film? Maybe. Maybe that's part three. And, and the, the rebooted Snowblade will be number three. But that's interesting. Do you want to finish? Mm. Is there anything else you want to know about Blood Fight before we talk about Snowblade? Uh, yeah, I, I, I want yeah. to know... Um, is it getting is it getting a DVD release or and then digital distribution or is it getting just digital distribution? It's theatrical and then it'll be um, other platforms, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, um, and then you know on the other digital platforms digital. after that. Oh, okay. Really happy well, that it, I'm happy that um, finds. Uh, I mean, by digital I mean like things like Netflix and what have you. But I'm really really excited that we'll find an audience and. Uh, I think it would be great. I mean, I, I actually would be, I, I don't know, um, maybe Voltage don't feel the same way, but it's another film that lends itself to a sequel because uh, I thought uh, you'd recast some of the roles, but I mean, I think Amy was so strong in the movie, people would be interested to follow her character on another, on another mission or another adventure. But, you know, I, I guess that's down to, to them, to a certain extent down to me because I own the underlying copyright. But I do think that the, uh, it was... Um, it's interesting. I, I, it was um, when I look at the film now, I really enjoy it. When I actually made the movie, it was um, it was a lot. It was less. It was more like hard work and less fun to make than I thought it was going to be. And it's an odd dichotomy. I've got movies like there was another movie I did years ago called Beach Spike about kung fu women's beach volleyball. That is a story. It's a narrative film. It's not a documentary. It's a film film. I mean, basically about girls. Um, learning Kung Fu in order to win a beach volleyball tournament. So it was an excuse to be on the summertime, in the summertime, on the beach in Hong Kong with a bunch of hot, gorgeous girls in bikinis. So, I mean, hey, right? <laughs> <laughs> so much fun to make. Sounds like a great each, plot. <laughs> a bit meh. It's a bit meh to watch. Like almost, uh, almost like, almost, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and this is where my mind is going right now. I'm thinking if it was done a certain way, it could be like Shaolin Soccer. With, yeah, you know, just beach volleyball with with, with <laughs> hey, yeah, there you go. 
it just it for various reasons it the movie was fun to make but it's not fun to watch for me lady blood fight was not fun to make but it's fun to watch so you just never know in life and as i said before you know you really have to um not to go not to live a life of regret and not to be bitter about the things that we always feel i think our aspiration our aspirations exceed our ability to make them really happen that what you had hoped for a project whether it's a book a film a musical whatever when it actually comes out it's not as good as you thought it was going to be so to reconcile that you have to focus on the journey that you're on as a person as a creator and you also have to treasure the time and the moments and the experiences of life during the making of the film and that's certainly something again lady blood fight particularly those scenes that we did the time that we spent in the old mansion house in yunlong was really just a treasure to 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 do that and actually the scouting of the movie with amy and chris when we were um just the small group of us was just looking at hong kong with fresh eyes was extraordinarily enjoyable so i come away from it with the recognition that it was a tough shoot but you look at the movie now and you go wow it's movie. with some ideas in there i hope some ideas in there um i tried to think that with the genre even though people might go oh look it's uh you know it's it's a such a full-on thing i mean i read these comments but oh it's some cheap cheap dumb you know kind of like rip-off Corman-esque thing. I hope when people actually see um, Lady Bloodfight, they would see that there's an attempt there, that there's an intelligence and a, a, a lyricism and some ideas being expressed, as they were with Crouching Tiger, beyond just let's have, have good-looking people fight, you know? I'm looking forward to seeing the movie. I was kind of hoping I, could, I would be able to see the movie before I talked to you today, because that was your like your next project. Mm-hmm. But uh, I definitely, I'm definitely excited, and if it'll be out next month, that'll be awesome. I'm mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to see it. I just like from the stills, it's, it looks pretty. Like the the, it really looks amazing. So I hope I get a chance to see it fairly soon as well. By the way, you know what? We're, you're very welcome. If we talk and you saw the movie and you didn't like it, you, I, we're not going to curse your name. I, I'm really, I'm really happy for anybody to um, to state an opinion about work that I've done. And at the end of the day, the, the, sometimes the people seem to be disappointed that I don't take it more seriously and, like, you know, retire and give up and go home. But the fact is that in anybody's career, you have ups and downs. You have things that are well received, less well received, and this guy likes your movie and that guy doesn't like your film and you can't base your your happiness on you know the opinion of others you've just got to base it on yourself and in some degree the immediate family and friends around you as to how you feel every day mm-hmm. and if, if you go online looking for recognition that validates you your work you know you're probably going to end up disappointed more than not well yeah because you have you have there are people that go online for the for the simple fact that they can hide behind anonymity and they can bash anything that they want to. So it kind of makes it it yeah. makes it hard to find. See, and that's why I'm saying you're only going to find the genuine people that really do care or love your work or what it is that you're what you're doing. If they genuinely love it, they're going to tell you that they do, and those are going to be the fans and the people that are going to support whatever you're doing versus the people that just want to bash anything that comes out that they have a minor criticism of. In another reality, if I had been the guy that stayed behind in Birmingham, England, 
and some other fella had come to Hong Kong, made films with famous martial arts stars, worked with gorgeous actresses, traveled the world, had a good living, had a great family, had a kung fu school, and lived the life that I lived, and I was stuck in Birmingham, I'd hate that guy too, and I'd be writing <laughs> on how he shouldn't be allowed to live. I would have that same feeling. So I do get, particularly in the, the goldfish bowl of the Hong Kong kung fu movie world, the fact that I was the one white guy who got to go on that journey. There may be a number of people who feel they should have had the journey as well. And I understand that. But I can't live my life or, you know, day by day work according to them. But I will say that everybody I've met who I could help um, come into the industry or with, with fulfilling their ambitions, as, as much as I can help them, I've, 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 I have. And, you know, there's any number of people who are relevant in the industry now who got kick-started by me. Um, so I'm glad for that. Um, that's the best thing that you can do is try to give back. If you have any level of success and recognition, you want to give it back to the people who are trying. But unfortunately, there's this trend now, as you say, that if you haven't made it, you sit there at home complaining about those that have. So, you know, that's human nature, I guess. Mm. And, and, it, and it also, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like there's the, the platform where you've, you mentioned, you know, you've mentioned IMDB before, and it's like how they ended up because of there being so much negativity and hatred and bullying and stuff happening on that level, they ended up shutting down their entire forum. And that was really the whole reason people really went on IMDB, because of the forums to argue about films or to talk about various things and 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 a few a few bad apples spoiled the bunch. So it's kind of <laughs> And I'm totally I found that really interesting. Um the fact that there was dialogue about film and even the dialogue that included I like this film and this is why I didn't like this film and this is why. I remember for example, reading what going on to the page devoted to the Borderland, a.k.a. COVID operation. And the first comment, which obviously written by somebody with an axe to grind, was, I could have shot a better movie than this in the back garden with my mom's handicap. That's evidently, that's not a, comp, that's not a, uh, a kind of a statement of, uh, of opinion. That is an evident misstatement of non-fact. You could not have shot that movie in a back garden with your mom's camera. I mean, the idea that this film reflects those production values. And by the way, there are films around nowadays, given the, proximi the, given the proximity of, you know, like cameras with high resolution, 4K cameras that you can buy in a store. There are films that get made and put onto Vimeo or put onto YouTube where you could say that is a movie you could make in your backyard. And guess what? That's what the guy did. And it runs 90 minutes, and he's calling it a movie, and fine. You know, that's, that's the nature of our industry right now. But Borderland is obviously not that. So when you see something like that and you're a filmmaker, you do feel like, do you want this guy to have a platform that the first thing somebody reads about your movie that you've worked so hard to make and that Mature, our director, did such a brilliant job on, somebody making that comment, which is not... If somebody said, well, I feel that the story's a bit fragmented or the dialogue's clunky in places or I didn't like this, I didn't like that, you go, okay, I don't mind. But when the first comment is so evidently not true on a big platform like that, it does give you pause. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely does, and I, that's why I say I, it looks like it looks like that was the case with IMDb. You had a few bad apples who spoiled it for everyone, and now even the people that were having logical, intelligent conversations and back and forth about film are robbed that opportunity to do so with others around the world because of there's plenty of uh, like what you mentioned. <laughs> let me tell you, there is um, unfortunately there is still a huge. There's a huge disparity between the number of smart directors, new directors, new producers, new screenwriters coming into the industry, and there are multiple platforms online for people to critique films and talk. They'll find a home. Yes. Not, yes. <laughs> they will find a home. But it's like it's what? like when you it's like when you say, okay, we got you've got this one centralized place you can go and they'll have all the like like for me there's you know yep. there's kung fu forums out there where you can go and you can yep. talk just about generally just about kung fu and, uh, and hong kong cinema mm-hmm. and you just have like all these you know it's a shame i couldn't somehow police it but that that again it's such a difficult, difficult yeah well that's thing another to... thing that that's another thing that honestly baffles me in this day and age you know you're at 2017 and you have all these technological advances and yet you have no way of policing your forums a little bit better so that you can make sure that it's reading what people say and making those judgments i guess that's where it fell down but what's interesting is for me the 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 the, you know going back to what i was saying about the, the you know the fact that there don't seem to be an increase in the number of talented people coming into the industry like for me for give you an example, when I the reason I started doing DVD commentaries is because I heard the one that a producer called Paul Heller did for Enter the Dragon, and I thought it was just so poor, to be honest. Sorry, Paul, but I just felt it was not that good. But rather than just go online, my my instinct was not I need to go online and tell everybody how much Paul Heller sucks as a commentary recorder. My thought was I need to go and find some Bruce Lee movies of the rights, somebody who has the rights to a Bruce Lee movie, and do my own commentaries better than him which to me is the better way and i think if somebody i'm not everybody can do this but i'm thinking you know if somebody didn't like a movie i made i'm like great like i think it was godard said the best way to review a movie is to make another movie go and make your own movies um some of you right and i did with the commentary do your own commentaries or if you don't like a book write your own book i mean i think there's a lot of the energy in the old days that the next Tarantino, the next Robert Rodriguez, is wasting his time on these chat rooms when he should be writing a script and out there making his movie. There mm. you go. The, the, because the internet has provided such an outlet for the point where everyone has a voice, that's what you, that's what you have now. And I, I, I love the example you gave, how you know, the talent is just not up and coming because there's really no motivation you have if he has this problem with some with a movie that you produced he can just go online and and talk about it and and bash it and and go on and and, and do the same thing with this high school bullying mentality <laughs> any genre any commentary any book anything it's become this thing of like all that energy and creativity is put into going online and maintaining this dialogue with people all the time 24 7 in a car on the subway in a taxi when in the old days you'd be sitting there hammering out a script a story you know something creative it becomes that the energy the, the energy i mean like Einstein said energy never changes, energy is never created or destroyed, it only changes form. So it's just the energy that was going into filmmaking 
or doing a play or doing a book now goes into all this twittering online. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's, we're getting into the Matrix era where, you know, Mike definitely reflect that to some degree. They want to live online like the pod people in the Matrix. And that was a very prophetic film in that way. They want to be online all the time. And they're not creating, mostly. I've they're seen a film like that. It was, mm. it was an Australian film. It was called, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, babe, but it's called virtual revolution and it was all about these people that they could make a choice to whether or not they wanted to live in the real world or they wanted to live uh connected in this virtual world where they could pretty much if they had enough money could live out their entire lives and be fed intravenously their whole life while they're living in this virtual world and be completely oblivious to anything happening in the outside world so well, in the Matrix, basically the, the pod people in the Matrix don't know that they are living a dream. These people would exactly. have a dream. Yeah, well, that's the moving, you know, unfortunately. Oh, so be it. So, what's next? What else? Roll on another well, Lord Masterpiece. We got, we want, I want to bring, I want to bring up, <laughs> some, I want to bring up a bunch of other things, but I figure, um, are, are you both, I mean, are you both okay? Because what I was going to do, we were going to, I was going to take a, like a three minute, like a three minute break here, and uh, then we're gonna come back. Sounds good. Sure. All right then. All right. Well, we're gonna take a break here. You've been listening to the Zod Rider Show, PSN-Radio.com, and our guest tonight is Bay Logan, and we will be right back.
we are back on tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show with our guest, Bay Logan. And I wanted to ask you, I wanted to switch gears a little bit before I get into your uh, upcoming film, Snowblade. I wanted to talk a little bit about your about your podcast you've done like and we talked a little bit at the top of the show where you've done you know you've done six episodes so far and you know i find it to be very compelling and it's great to listen to it because it's it it's like almost getting like in some ways getting current commentaries from you like recently the i i you know after listening to the one you did about gordon lau and and um you know and i i just sort of and chang pei pei and all these great, these great, talented people that you that you've been that you talked about in, in your in your podcast. And the great the great thing about it is it's like you know all you seem to know all these people personally. So that makes it that makes it all the right. more that makes it all the more interesting. What's well, been would, your favorite would, uh, one so far? I think um, probably uh, the. Um, I like the one you talked about earlier, the, the, the one with the... I heard it back the other day. I wasn't sure when I was recording it, but when we had the 90s from Holland in there, and there was that back and forth. Um, and then I... But what's interesting is there's a couple of things about that. Is I resisted for a long time becoming too involved with any kind of online presence like that. Because I felt there were perhaps two filmmakers, um, up-and-coming filmmakers, in had parallel careers, trying to make speaking the people that were making films. And I wasn't sure, I'm still not sure that's a healthy way to approach it. That was the first thing. Second thing was that I, um, I felt, uh, I was convinced by a friend of mine, the reason I did do it, to sh- that I'd had these unique experiences um, relevant to different side of the news, like Gordon Lau, like Gordon Liu or Chen Pei Pei or whatever that you might hear about um, contact. And you kind of heard the same comments or the same observations repeated. And I might have a unique perspective by virtue of being the only white guy that's kind of lived and worked among them, as I have during the years that I've been here. So that's kind of where it started from. And people seem to like it, so I'll keep doing them. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, they're they're good. And and I w- can you can you talk a little bit about your about your co-host that you have? Uh, <laughs> who's a very a tall, handsome, um, half Chinese, half Dutch guy who's like um, also a filmmaker. He, he, he and I did a documentary called Thousand Hands of the Guru, which is available now. I'm going to be distributed globally, and uh, you can find out about that on the beloved IMDb. They should be really sponsoring your podcast. We've mentioned them enough. <laughs> we did doc- the girl, I should say he did the documentary and I kind of like came in to help him as producer. But uh, And he's a guy that I will be working with going forward who's like part of my team. I I'd had an interesting background. I always wanted to put together like what we would call in Cantonese a gaban, jiabian, like a family team of filmmaking young people, younger people. Everybody's younger than me these days, but like a younger team around me. And I had like a false start with that a couple of years ago, where it was just the wrong people, the wrong fit. And uh, I kind of like expended a lot of energy trying to basically up running a kindergarten when I wanted to be running Andy Warhol's factory. You know, <laughs> it was a different. But Warhol had, you know, Lou Reed and I had, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, Baby Bowie or whoever. You know, I had like kind of like uh, I had some I had uh, Pee Wee Herman. So which is very difficult <laughs> a couple of years ago to kind of like 
run that kind of a team. And now the team's come together and it's much stronger. And there's Toby's involved. My son, Ryan, who's leaving school soon, will be involved. And various other filmmakers, um, editors, uh, DPs, and just kind of the connecting factor is people in Southeast Asia who are not necessarily ethnically like Hong Kong Chinese or Chinese Chinese born and raised, but they, like me, they're inhabiting this borderland between East and West, but have the desire to tell stories that reflect their own experience. And so that's where Toby's coming from. And, and part of what we've been doing is finding ways to work together. Um, and the podcast was something that he brought in. He's very technically minded in a way that I'm not. Um, like when I introduced Jackie Chan at the Oscars, he shot that for me. So he's just a great, great team player. At the same time, um, for example, on his documentary, we needed um, to bring in a little bit of star power. So we brought in um, an old friend of mine, Stephen Segal, who's also a longtime Buddhist, to do an interview. Because the documentary is about uh, Buddhist tanker, the restoration of Buddhist tanker in, uh, in, in Bhutan. So we had actually uh, Stephen Segal talk about it and, you know, show his tanker from his private collection and come on as an executive producer. So it's been an exchange of resources and energy, and it's been great. And that, that's Toby. So you, you hear him on most of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. He was his, his right. absence was notable in the in the last one that you did. <laughs> Yeah, but he was recording in the background. Uh, but um, yeah. uh, Ryan, eldest son, is now um, fully savvy on how to record podcasts. So he'll be like, you know, stepping in and maybe doing some with me as well. He's, he, he has a lot to share as well. We'll be doing one about um, Kofay, Philip Kofay, who uh, passed away. Now it's a couple of months ago. But he was the first, a long time um, mainstay of the Kung Fu film industry. And he was also the first director that I worked with as a producer, I produced a film that was shot, a Chinese film shot in L Birmingham, London, Paris, and Hong Kong called Guns and Roses. That was my very first film, and he passed away. I buried two directors. Philip, who did that, my first movie as um, producer, and my first movie seriously as an actor, which was um, Circus Kids, Ma Heisuji, Wu Ma, who directed me in that, he passed away a few years ago. So I, I'm, oh, wow. it's kind of... Oh. Getting old sucks, you know, it's just like, so anyway, but with Philip, we'll be talking about my memories of Philip on an upcoming podcast, but in a fun way, don't, it won't be a downer, guys, don't worry, it won't be me, you know, I mean, to some extent, of course, we're just celebrating his life, it won't be mourning online, trust me. Well, it's like because you're not doing, and because you're not doing the the commentaries so much anymore. The the idea of the podcast is kind of good because it gives people who have that connection with you through those commentaries a chance to hear you speak more about this subject that you that you're so well versed in. So that's so that's really yeah. awesome. I, I'm just glad you glad you mm -hmm. decided to uh, take that take that plunge and, and do that that show. It's really enjoyable. How to make some money out of it to make it even more motivating, but it's great. <laughs> well, how, how's that working out for you? Because I, I love the way you drop, you know, <laughs> name drop companies, and you'll say you'll mention like different things. And <laughs> I, I know there's a subtle way of doing it that I haven't mastered yet. Do you know what's funny is that? Uh, but I am still doing commentaries. I do them for a German company called Vengeance Pack. And I do them for 88 films in Hong Kong. Uh, sorry, in England. Um, in England, uh, in both cases for Hong Kong classic films. The, what's happened is in America, for some reason, um, they don't. The, the, the companies in Hong, in America that are releasing films on DVD either don't 
think to ask or don't want me to do commentaries, but I'm very open to. The obvious one is Wellgo, and with Wellgo, I actually very stupidly did reach out to them and say, hey, by the way, I'd like to do commentaries, and they very um, bluntly said, no, we don't want you, so I was like, oh, okay. I wonder, me why the, I wonder why that is. Yeah, I don't understand I, that. That would have been the perfect, that would have actually been the perfect fit. That's just what I was going to suggest. It's yeah. this psychic link right now, because I was just going to suggest, well, go. <laughs> we have this thing called uh, Yunfan, which is fate. And it's really weird, because there's a woman who's in charge, they're based in Texas, there's a woman who's in charge of um, Welgo, and then Doris Pafarshvara, she's got like 15 syllables in Dutch after her name. But it, we, I've never met her formally, but I've been around in the same place as her, and sometimes you feel you have this, what we call fun, this fate to work with somebody, and we, she and I definitely don't have it, and I think it's actually as esoteric as that. There is no, there's some, some, a negative energy there that prevents us working together, which is why I haven't done stuff for Wellgo. And sometimes when you meet people or you get into, not to get too kind of like, you know, airy-fairy on you guys, but sometimes when you get into certain situations, um, you, you, connect, you, you deal with somebody and it's a Western thing. You think, if I'm just a bit nicer, more generous, if I just muscle this through, I can work with them. And the reality is you should actually be more open to the reality of your own experience and go, this is not a bad person, and you're not a bad person, but this is not somebody with whom you have that, you know? But the girl who was the lead actor, the lead Chinese girl in Lady Bloodfight, Jenny Wu, is somebody like that. She's a great actress, probably in the right circumstances, a good person, but she's not somebody I would work with again because of that sense of, you know, the, the lack of connectedness, for a better world. But the funny thing is, we recognize it in the positive version, which is when you meet somebody that you immediately connect with, you go, okay, for some reason I'm really connecting with this person. But when it's the other opposite, which is somebody that you've got some inherent lack of connection with, there's a tendency to try to keep it somehow, somehow you're going to try to make it work. Mm. And I see it in relationships and I see it in business relationships and I'm going, I've learned my, the hard way myself. Mm -hmm. Not there, you, know, you just take a step back and, you know, I mean, Hand on my heart. There's no one in the world now, if there was a button A, that they would live happily, healthily, well, somewhere else. I would press that button rather than button B is that they would die horribly. Anybody in the world, that's true of. I really feel that. I just don't want those people who I don't have that connection with to be somehow badgering me or bothering mm. me. Or I want them to go off and be successful and happy somewhere else. That's what I really want. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because a lot of people try and force a lot of things and it just doesn't flow and it just makes um, a bit of a mess at times, <laughs> whether it be life or filmmaking or or whatnot. You're just going to make a bigger mess. <laughs> the whole thing, I mean, it's a very American thing. It's not you, it's me. It's not me, it's you. No, it's us. It's us. Yeah. And you be aware of, you know, kind of... I mean, I think, I think the thing is, like, the... Um, the tendency in Western life has been to rationalize everything to the point that there is no really perceptible spiritual world and no world of energy. It's just everything is material and mm -hmm. it's kind of like it can be dealt with in, a, in an ABC kind of way. And there's no, to my mind, having traveled the world and lived the life I've led, there's less evidence for that than the fact that we are spirits in the material world, you know, <laughs> quoting another police song, you know, but mm -hmm. that that's to me so if you work from that position 
then I think it um, explains a lot of stuff that otherwise seems to be a real mystery, you know. Uh, mm. And that's what I'm trying to do with film and everything I'm doing. It's basically, you know, if, if you take the reality that we're like not, we're basically spiritual beings having a human experience, not human beings having a spiritual experience. If you take that, everything you're doing is towards realizing whatever your potential is and your nature is through the work, like you doing mm -hmm. it with your podcast. I'm doing a podcast. I'm doing more books. I'm doing more films, documentaries, and even day-to-day -day interaction with people. That's all part of a similar, I think it's different expressions of a similar energy. Mm. That's, that's so true. I totally agree with all that. It really, I find too many people focus on the, like you said, the, 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 the basic kind of like the monetary, what I have, what I want, what it versus, you know, what, what is, what makes you happy? What works for you? You know, like people do not look at that anymore. Yeah. They just look about what's my bottom line. And they're very unhappy I, people actually. <laughs> absolutely. Well, I, go back, I go back to what I was saying when people come in uh, critical about, you know, movies that I've made and I feel sometimes uh, selfish because I say, you know what, you had like 90 minutes not enjoying it, but I had maybe nine months of fun making it. So selfishly, I want to have those nine months. And if it means you have, of course, I love it. the end, the 90 minutes was so enjoyable. They changed your life and made you really happy. But if after the 90 minutes you go, I hated that movie, I'm so sorry. But I love the nine, nine months and I still want them. <laughs> so that's how I. <laughs> That's well, how I live in the industry and stay as happy as I am. So over time, as, as, as time has passed, has, has the overall uh, consensus that you've gotten for Crouching Tiger been more positive now as time has kind of gone on? Yes, it's been absolutely, um, a, I would say, a binary split between um, what I would think of as being uh, hardcore fans of the first movie and online pundits who went out okay. of their way to vilify it in the most extreme mm -hmm. terms. And what I would say is um, mainstream uh, or the audi a more mainstream audience or an, even a knowledgeable mainstream audience like I would consider you guys to be, where they would just go, that's such a fun movie. I really enjoyed it. it was, we, we had a great time. And many of them, of course, one of the biggest uh, realizations we had, the original first cut of Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, was really closely tied to the first movie. I mean, it was really a sequel. I mean, it was, it was, there were like these threads that connected it really tightly. What we found when we played the movie to test audiences was they were very confused because they had not remembered the details of the storyline of Crouching Tiger 1 as closely as we did, as much as we thought they had. It wasn't like a Star Wars situation where everybody remembered every line of Star Wars when you made Empire Strike. Back, or even when you made Force Awakens and you were shouting back to stuff that was very much part of their cultural reference points. Crouching Tiger, people remember the name, they remember chicks with swords, they remember the treetops. That was it. That was all they remembered. And so, to some extent, we had to make the movie more of a standalone. And that's the response people have had, is basically they just saw it as their first exposure to that universe, and they really enjoyed it. But, yeah, I mean, because the thing is, when you've just finished a movie, and if you live, as I do, a slightly removed life, slightly removed from reality, certainly slightly removed. Listen, I live in a kung fu school, and I'm in Hong Kong. So I'm slightly removed from the, you know, the regular world. 
like, like you know, Scott, I'm more of a dog. You're like, you're like Scott. You're like Scott Atkins in Ninja. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm more of Doctor Strange than I am Doctor Kildare. So I'm like out on the fringes. So I'm just getting the comments online and whatever. But then from traveling in the world and dealing with more people as time passes, you get more of a feel for it. So I definitely felt more people liked uh, Crouching Tiger. Um, in the mainstream, people really enjoyed it, and I was really happy for that. Oh, yeah, um, and I mean, I personally was a huge, huge fan of the original film and just felt like this film sat next to it. And I was one of those people who really would have appreciated more connecting threads to yeah. the original movie. But then again, I, I see what you're saying where you're talking about, you know, people remembering rooftops and chicks with swords. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah, that you know, kind that... of made me giggle because that yeah. kind of... Yeah. Well, that kind of... That, that, I mean, that resonates. I mean, I, I mean, I understand what you're, what you're saying there. Yeah, being that it could have been more of a true sequel. But, I mean, it works as a standalone film, so... Yeah. We tested the audience, tested the movie for audiences. They enjoyed it hugely, and we got huge test scores, high test scores with the final version of the film where it was more of a standalone. So we knew at that stage that mainstream audiences was, would like it. I think we just didn't know, you know, quite. There was this online punditry, these kind of guys who, who had the acts out for the movie as they did. I mean, God, you know what? They're giving us, they gave us a hard time. Heaven help Denise Villeneuve when, uh, when Blade Runner 2 comes out. I'm still oh, looking forward to it. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to mention that too, Bay. That's a, that's going to be incredible. If it's not right, the backlash is going to oh, be horrible. Oh boy, yeah, it's going to, that's, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> we, we were like, okay, we're going to be aliens to alien. I don't think we succeeded to the level that James Cameron did, but we did our best. And I think that what you have to do with Blade Runner is if anybody, if any director at that time who was not Ridley Scott could have done a sequel to Alien, it was James Cameron. So now it's like on, on the landscape, looking at Arrival, which I thought was a masterpiece, if any director can follow on from Ridley Scott on Blade Runner, it would be uh, Villeneuve. So I think we're maybe in for something interesting, but we'll see. Yes. Uh, I thought, by the way, the most visually exciting movie since Blade Runner probably was um, Ghost in the Shell. But uh, uh, I'm obviously a lo- I'm in a minority on that. But uh, I think the film, one of those movies, look, it's like, you know what? I'll tell you that the great masterpiece of Hong Kong or Chinese cinema of the last 50 years that um, I, I wish I could tell you was Crouching Tiger was uh, Wuxia which was made by the team I originally wanted to do Crouching Tiger 2 with, which was Peter Lam, Peter, sorry, Peter Chan, Chan Ho-san as director, Donnie Yen as the lead actor and choreographer, Aubrey Lam as the screenwriter. And that was Wuxia Dragon. That film, to me, is a masterpiece, and it's still not been recognized quite for how good it is. And sometimes films need to breathe a bit. You know, you need to give them 10 years or so, which is not good news for the investors, but no. maybe it is for audience. I, I agree with you. Time, time to breathe actually turns films that are very uh, poorly received into into epic cult classics. It happens. Yeah. But what, what happens gonna, all the time? I, I was going to ask you one. <laughs> big trouble in China with our man we had on the other day. Big trouble was the was the great example of that, wasn't it? Oh, I mean, yes. I can't think of a more... perfect example. But, but it kind of like it's got this great following and we had James Pax on as our first guest on the podcast which was a lot of fun he, so he really I, and he really had a lot to say I was surprised at all the stuff that he remembered from that from that movie uh, from that sh- from that shoot I mean that's that was a while ago too what was it 80 86 85 when they were making 
Yeah. Something yeah, like that. Like, I mean, it, yeah. Year of Ghostbusters, I know that, because that was probably yeah. the film it second best to in a big way, but anyway. So, so I what guess else I, wanted to... I guess I have on. one final question about Crouching Tiger before I start asking you about your upcoming uh, directed film, uh, Snowblade. Is there is there any possibility at all that that first cut that you talked about that was screened for audiences will ever be released? No, and you know, I, I sometimes in the old days, like with Medallion and stuff, I sneakily kept a cut of the early versions for myself because I um, know that these things tend to vanish. Um, and I didn't even keep one that I can send you. I mean, sometimes I do that, but I didn't keep it even. With Crouch Tiger, I didn't keep a cut. Um... No, I don't even. I don't, even I don't have it. So I, I think it's oh, unlikely. Wow, it'll never be. Oh, released. that's wow. That's that's so that's so sad. But I, yes. I understand what you're saying, though, because that you know that makes that makes sense too. Especially if they find the preferred cut and they and they leave that, and that's. If the movie was ever rediscovered in the future, people came back to it and said, "Oh, there's some merit here," and they really wanted to, you know, uh, get in there and see. The deleted stuff it's definitely been preserved so potentially it could so never say never i mean there's a lot of films where you think well that stuff's never going to see the light of day and if it hasn't been destroyed eventually it does i mean i want to see all the outtakes and stuff from from the grand master one car wise movie so you know in in i asked him i mean Choi hark showed me all the t- outtakes all the stuff they cut from seven swords but unfortunately, Kawai wouldn't do the same for Grandmaster. The, uh, the, un, the uncut, the uncut chainsaw scene in the Big Boss with Bruce Lee. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's. Um, that's <laughs> I mean, I, you talk about yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's if you understand if you understand if you if you come up from a fan point of view where you worship Bruce Lee and every frame of Bruce Lee is gold. It's impossible to understand how anything could be thrown away. If you understood the situation in Hong Kong at that time and the filmmaking uh, processes at that time, the fact that footage got lost is not a mystery. And it's probably stranger that stuff survives to be like the Game of Death stuff that I found. It's stranger that it survived than that stuff was lost. You know, and if you think about it, it's probably better that all the Game of Death stuff, which was like 90 minutes, was kept. And the sore in the head, which is probably like three seconds, was lost. So absolutely, you know. I totally agree with you there. Yeah, that game of that game of death stuff was absolutely gold to have found. So, so now, so now I have to transition into a film that you're directing. It's called Snowblade. What can you tell? What can you tell us about? Yes. It? Well, what happened was years ago. I mean, um, in the kind of my. By the way, just if you can bring you up to speed, I did another movie. Since we finished Lady Blood Fight, since I finished and released Crouching Tiger, I did uh, six months. I was working on developing a superhero film for China, like do the first Chinese superhero movie, which we're still developing. But I wasn't getting paid a lot of money to develop something. So I had to take time off to do another picture, basically for hire, to make to make some cash and that was kickbox retaliation which was a lot of fun we did that in bangkok with jean-claude van damme alain moussi um half thor oh you were involved you were involved with that that most recent kickboxer film yeah not the event not vengeance the one that's come out but retaliation the one that's yet to come out i worked on that in all right 
which was a great experience. And uh, I think that, that film, it, the trailer's up now, and it really looks cool. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. People are going to enjoy it. And then with Snowblade, what happened was, um, a few years ago, I had the intention to direct something, and I wanted to do something very different, like a uh, bloody, sexy, manga-esque movie. And um, uh, it was like... Um, it was a very, for some reason, uh, well, we went up to, there's the same studio in China that I talked about where I did uh, Blood Bond and later did Borderland and started shooting there, working with a really uh, good friend of mine, a DP called Rain Lee. And we shot um, first section of the film. And then the girl who was the lead actress, her father was unwell and he was from Indonesia. She's from Indonesia. So she went back to Indonesia and to cut a short story long, she just basically never came back. Oh. So that was that. And so it just became like, um, you know, what do you, uh, what do you do? It was like Hamlet without the Prince. It's like you've got this movie with this, with this title, which is Snowblade, and you don't have a Snowblade to make the movie with. So it was very depressing. For a while, I was a bit like, you know, well, uh, do, I, wait, I waited a long time for her to come back. And to this day, I can tell you the full reasons why she disappeared as she did. Um, and apparently... She'd been paid, we'd been shooting, she did a good job, we didn't have any crosswords between us. I suspect that she met some wealthy guy who she started a relationship with, and this guy was like, don't do some low-budget, sexy Japanese manga movie for a first-time director, stick with me, I'll make you a star. Oh. Something like that. And um, I suppose I'm slightly gratified that she was never heard of since. But, but that was it. But she left me, high, left me high and dry. And we had a contract with her and everything. But we got like a legal letter saying she didn't intend to make the rest of the movie. And so it took me a while. I figured she'd come around. And then it was a bit like a bereavement. It took me a while to basically say, oh, she's not coming back. And then I had the idea of doing like a portmanteau film, which would use one third of it would be set in the maybe the old the dynastic period that I had already shot with her, that would be one third. And then I would do a futuristic one, a modern day section, and then a futuristic one. Um, but I began work on the, the middle section, which is the contemporary version. And I think now we may do that. We, sorry, I think now we will do that as a feature length movie, contemporary Hong Kong, Japanese manga, sexy, dark, bloody action piece. So that's its long gestation. But I think that'll be an interesting DVD because when we do do the DVD, we'll have all the stuff from the first incarnation as well as whatever we shoot now. And you'll do a commentary on that, mm -hmm. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just a weird... I mean, listen, that movie basically is about a woman selling her soul to the devil. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that if you actually speak the devil's name, he will come. So I, I don't know whether I was the, uh, I was the benefit. Maybe I. You were the human. You were the oh human Ouija board that 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 sent her away to where she never came back. <laughs> you were the catalyst, <laughs> maybe. Um, oh no. Oh, we seem to have lost Bay there for a moment. Oh, we'll that's such a we'll shame. Try, we'll try. We'll try, try to get him back. Yeah, we seem to. He, we cut, he cut out. And... Yeah, speaking about the devil. <laughs> yeah, speaking of the devil, and then it got all it got all funny and. and well, you know, I mean, buzzing and. <laughs> 
Yeah, that wasn't good. <laughs> uh, but you know what? Maybe uh, it, not so much him, but maybe she made the deal with the devil. Who knows who she met when she went back home and why she decided not to do the movie. Uh, yeah, we, I, maybe, she'll, maybe she'll phone into your show. But that was that. But anyway, so, I mean, I, I think if I, if I would have had, you know, I think I outlived the bad luck. Because since, touch wood, since that time, things have gone well. And I'm looking forward now to the next round of films in Thailand, working with uh, a director called Chaos, who did Ballistic X versus Sever years ago. And he's a really cool Thai director based in Bangkok. And also an old friend of mine, Steven Seagal, the um, actor, martial arts master and blues guitarist. So we're looking to do a couple of pictures in Thailand soon, which I think are going to be fun and interesting and different and challenging. Um, so that's my immediate next project. Mm. And then also, is uh, that a Christian? Uh, that is a working title, yes. Yes, okay. The, the project currently known as Attrition. And so that one is... Uh, we seem to have lost Bay again, but we're going to get him well. back. We'll we'll do our best to get him back. I mean, he she is was... on the beach, folks. <laughs> he is enjoying a very lovely vacation with his with his kids and 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 is on the beach. You can't kind of blame can't him. Get much better than that. And I'm no, actually surprised no. we've had such a we've had such a good connection as it is. I mean, we've managed to, you know, get keep the whole thing keep the whole thing going. He's only he's cut out a few times though, but. We'll see. Well, we'll see if this is you know, successful. We've been very lucky to have him for an hour and a half, so if we don't get him back. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm I'm excited for uh for the hour and a half that we got here. Well, I've gotta say I'm looking at the the future. I really do want to see Lady Blood fight. That looks amazing. Guys, can you hear me? Oh, we got we got him we got you back. Yeah, we lost we lost Ooh, you for a minute. Sorry, there. I, I dropped happened. out. Somebody somebody was trying to call on the other line, and, and I had to eliminate them. So um, busy year lined up, and um, I'm you know I feel I've been blessed that I you know experienced so many amazing projects and met so many amazing people the last couple of years, and I, I feel learned a lot from my experiences uh, to apply to what I'm doing going forward. So I, I really appreciate your you guys' support. And I'm happy to come on any time and talk about my misadventures. <laughs> that is that is awesome. I, I do want to thank you very much for uh, for joining my us pleasure. on tonight's show, Bay. It's been it's been a yes, pleasure. Thank you like so the much. Last time having you here. How much and, fun? And, and I and I and the next time we have you on, we'll have seen your current work. So that's so that's yes, gonna yes. Be, it's going to be exciting. I'll definitely that's pick up, up the blue. You've blue seen it. You, maybe you'll see it. and Never want to talk to me again. These, these things. <laughs> well, can go I'm looking way. forward to Lady. <laughs> Lady I'm looking forward to Lady yeah. Blood fight. I mean, I'm a huge, yes, a huge fan of yours. Tell me what you really think. So, you yes, tell me will. what you really think. I value your your opinion. You don't have to tell me that you. You don't have to make me happy. Try to make me happy by saying you like stuff you didn't like. And by the way, the fact that you, uh, I found it with you a ready audience for Crouching Tiger has uh, has already kind of made my day. So thank you for that. Well, thank you very much for coming on our show. All right. And thank you for, for producing and making such good movies, Bay. We look forward to hearing right. from you again and continue to enjoy your vacation. Absolutely. Thank you again, yes. sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Bay Logan, ladies and gentlemen. Ex- excellent guest. We've got we've got about uh, 30 minutes left in the show, so we're going to uh, – so Victoria and I are just going to kind of – 
letting well, let think, it loose right now. Yeah, it let it. Well, you know what? Let like, it just, that was good. It's very hard because you just just the names he mentions and the people he's been fortunate enough to work with, and then you talk to him and he's he's actually like a like he likes what he does and he's not shy, but he's also got the you know this kind of like humility side that I really like like that it's just like you know it's oh, yeah. like I've always I've always been a huge uh, huge fan of his I mean I, I can't I'm trying to remember what the first film commentary track that he did was that I heard him on because I'm a big fan of um, of, of Hong Kong cinema in general and martial arts yes. movies and that kind of thing and I I think it was a I think it was a John Woo movie I've always been a big fan of John Woo's and so like and he's done you know several commentaries I've heard all of his uh, Bruce Lee commentaries that he did on the Bruce Lee films and stuff like yes. that and he really he really was right about that I mean he makes some great commentaries and the truth is is that if I'm going to listen to a commentary on a movie like that I'd rather listen to him because he really does know his stuff and he's worked with a lot of these people in the industry so it mm-hmm. it kind of it, it kind of works out well and the fact that he's directing you know he's directing uh He's got a film coming out that he's directing is is pretty awesome too. So yeah, I think that, I think it's going to be quite amazing. I'm also looking at I, I I I'm looking at the star power he has and some of the ones that he's he's sort of in the process of making with uh, you know with with some more you know famous in the West kind of kind of individuals like Jean Claude Van Damme and Christopher Lambert. Like I those are two very very well known people. So I really hope everything works out for the the kickboxer one and the attrition well, one like look at the, the look at the la- look at the lady on the cover of the of lady blood fight doesn't she kind of look like you victoria <laughs> I, I should be so lucky <laughs> really like, like that, that's 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 uh that's that's very kind of you <laughs> let me leave it that way i think personally you know what's captivated me with that um, movie that I just I really really like is um, the picture of Muriel Hoffman in the all white fit like if you look at the um, just the stills they have like from the movie it, it really like she just she looks like she would just kick your ass no offense but she'd yeah. actually like really just take you out like it's just such a like the one would do you know which the one I mean the one she's all in white she's yeah, the teacher I see it I see what you're saying yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I really, awesome. you know, like and I well yeah and um, although I don't think she looks like me, I think Amy Johnson has amazing presence and she's stunning. Um, I I really like I I I really hope there's some some scenes in here where, you know, like there's one where this shows this this gentleman taking a hand to a woman. But I hope there's it goes the other way too. I hope she kicks some some real butt <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty i'm pretty sure that's what she's going to do i mean i mean you know bay logan is a guy that did a movie about uh, you know a, vo- a female volleyball team doing learning um kung fu to win a vo- uh, beach vo- beach volleyball tournament i mean <laughs> he's obviously gonna have plenty of women kicking butt in this movie and yeah, so I, I think I'm, I think that's attractive. I don't know what I, I find. I, it, I actually I, find I, I actually find myself I actually find myself really really looking forward to this movie. And like I said, I kind of wish I would have been able to see the movie prior to having him on because I'm sure that I would have had more questions uh, tonight. If huh, but, like Amy Johnson's phone number or. <laughs> 
No, no, but more, more, more along, more along the lines of just uh, like you, you know, like for example, when we talked a lot about the the Crouching Tiger, uh, Sword of Destiny. I mean that yes. that's a move that was a movie that was so hyped up at the time that it was coming, and being that it was a Netflix original film and they were making it. I mean, it was a huge you know collaboration just from all over the place, and the mm-hmm. idea that you have. You know, I was just so excited. I'm like, oh my god! You know, Bay Logan is on board with this movie, and we've talked with we, you know, we've talked to him before, and I'm gonna, <laughs> we'll definitely be able to, you know, kind of pick his brain about this movie. And he was so thorough, and he covered just about everything. And like I said, I just, I just was excited. I was, I, I think I was geeking out more this time than I was the first time we had him on the show. So, I don't know. I it's it's hard not to geek out when he when you see. You know, like like he said, you know, like a lot of the comments, the negative comments he gets is is just from people who want to do what he did. Like, I mean, he, you know, how he broke into the martial arts scene in Hong Kong. That's that's phenomenal. And and everyone he talks to and talks about also, it's like, you know, he talks to them like they're friends, right? You know, it's like we get yeah, together, like their family, he my family. He talks about Don, he talks about Donnie Yen a lot like that, and you know Donnie Yen is becoming a big international superstar. I mean, he already was in his own right a big, huge star, and now you know he was in he was recently in Star Wars and Rogue One, and now he's forever a part of that universe. And Star Wars is cultural and spans spans the whole globe. So you have you know so you have that's only going to add to Donnie Yen's marquee status and he's worked with I mean he's worked with him he's worked with everyone and it's kind of cool to see you know to see where you know where he's going to go and I'm I have so much hope for for example for Snowblade I think Snowblade's going to be an awesome yeah. movie especially the way he was describing it it sounds interesting and then we kept and we kept losing him a little bit but I was just so grateful for the time that we had tonight with with Bay Logan that was really cool Well yeah it is I just I think he's one of the guests that we've had on you know, before, and it really is just, and I mean, I, I get a little bit starstruck with him just because he, he's, he's just worked with so many amazing people and he's so talented himself that I kind of just, you know, I, I do geek out myself a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, I was geeking out, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a brief uh, break here right now and uh, we'll come, we're going to come back and, uh, kind of wrap things up here on tonight's episode so uh stay tuned you're listening to psn-radio.com the zod writer show
And we are back on tonight's episode of the Zod Rider Show. Uh, Victoria and I are going to kind of transition now for the last um, 20, 20 or so minutes left of the show and kind of talk about something we were talking about a little bit with uh, Bay Logan earlier tonight about how we're all living in sort of in this connected world. And, I, you know, I did mention a movie that I've seen recently that really hit me. It's an Australian film. Uh, called Virtual Revolution, and that Virtual Revolution film uh, really, like, touches on a lot of the online elements and things that we're getting today about how, you know, people are kind of addicted to social media, and they're ki- they kind of live their lives uh, on social media, and I've seen, you know, a- you know it's, it's really kind of telling if you go to, like, a family gathering or a family dinner, and you have everybody sitting around the table, and everybody has either a cell phone or a tablet in front of their face. And it just yeah. goes to show you where we are, you know, and, and, you know, on, and Bay Logan had mentioned something, not on this particular show, but on a podcast that he had done where he had said, you have, you have people in your, in your family, you know, they have 5 million Facebook friends that they've never met. And it's just an amazing, it was an amazing way to look at it because I kind of, you know, I could kind of see where, you know, where he was going with that and, you know, the uh, the absurdity of it, the way that social media has kind of well, taken everything. Unfortunately, with social media, your um, your actions are almost immediately um, rewarded, so to speak. So it's like, you know, it's a real it's an immediate reward. It's like you post something and oh, my gosh, 25 people liked it or 45 people liked it. And, oh, and yeah. you we feel were, like uh, the instant gratification. element. Yeah. Of it, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and it's literally you feel accomplished. Well, you haven't fodder, done anything. Fodder for the masses. And, and I, I, you know, and I, you know, and you and I talk a lot offline about I, I, I and I and I've done this on the roundtable show a lot. I will dredge on and on about how great I think virtual reality is like I'm a big fan of that whole idea of you put those goggles on and you are transported into another world and that's where social media is headed too because we're getting to the point where with virtual reality and technology being what it is you'll be able to be anywhere in the world that you want to be without ever having to live to ever having to leave, leave wherever you are currently residing which is so <laughs> is, there's the argument like is is the virtual world as good as the real world um i personally think it's 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 wonderful it's magical and you can spend a lot of time there but it still doesn't cut what happens in the I don't know, and, and I kind of, I kind of have a. I, I know you're the opposite point where I kind of feel like when, once you can start eating actual food, consuming food, like you're living in the Matrix, like what Bay Logan was talking about. Once you can finally, once you can finally do that, and you're finally at that point, you are no longer. I mean, the real world is no longer <laughs> real. valid anymore yeah. because you know once you can start consuming things and you, we're getting to the point where they're they're coming out with uh sensors where you'll be able to actually feel different things in virtual reality it won't just be visually you'll be there you'll actually be able to feel like hot and cold and the touch of mm. another person well it's um, like that scene in the matrix where he's eating the steak right right that's the perfect you, analogy and you know and, and you know and he knows the smell the texture the nose 
Right. Ignorance is bliss, right? Well, that's well that that's that's kind of the you know the idea that I I I have about it. Is it is it really does it really matter if your brain believes it's real and it's telling you it's real? Does it matter if it's real? What is real anyway? What is real yeah. in the real sense if your brain believes something is real, something is really happening? If you can put some goggles on and convince your brain that you're in the Bahamas on a vacation when actually you're sitting on your toilet, who are any, <laughs> of, these, who are any of these other people to judge you? I mean, that's well, just true. my question. Like, But the thing is, I, I guess for me, I, I did go through some certain... Uh, situations. I went through a very horrific divorce, and and there was separation from my family and and everything else. And I really dove head first into the online world, and there are various different sites. But when things kind of settled, you know, and my real life got better, I found Virtual Hollow. You know, like it was, it was like, uh, you know, I was actually dating someone who would prefer to sit in his living room online than actually spend time with me in real. And, yeah, and, I, and, and so <laughs> I can see, I can see how that would be, how that would be kind of counterproductive from a relationship standpoint. I mean, I've, I've had, you know, I, I even posted something on my Facebook. A few months ago where you see a picture of a guy sitting on the couch and he's wearing these virtual goggles and then next to him is apparently his girlfriend and she's kind of just looking at him enjoying whatever experience he's having in the virtual world and she's just kind of sitting there like well what am i just a piece of furniture or what like you know it's kind of it's tricky you know because it is literally like um, for example, we, we didn't live in the same city. So, you know, we would have dates on Skype and he's like, oh, it's just like being there. And I'm like, no, it's not. Well, I, <laughs> you well know? okay, but my, my so, thing is like, okay, for like example, an example of like a long distance relationship, you're going to spend, you're going to spend a long distance relationship. Is it really, I, I guess when somebody says, well, it's it's almost like being there. I guess it's because you can communicate in the same way you would. You, you just it's just that the physical element isn't isn't present, but with the way virtual reality is getting, that's going to become a thing of the past because as of right now they've already got technology that will allow you to I guess feel the embrace of your significant other through an app on your phone with some sort of sensor. And they've already got – and this technology is just getting better where it's going to allow mm-hmm. you eventually – you and I will be able to put our goggles on and broadcast the show how we are now and we can actually sit next to each other while we're broadcasting the show. We're getting to that point. So yeah, it's true. I, I have it's to true. wonder if you're going to be able to have these kinds of relationships with people all over the world if it's really going to matter to your brain or to you personally, it's going to really blur the line as to what's real and what isn't, and it's going to really make you question, is this real? Mm-hmm. Is this something that we're 
actually experiencing versus something that we're not experiencing at all and where it's just happening in our minds but even there's nothing that's saying that the life that we're living now isn't just something we're experiencing in our minds yes either. there's always been that so it's been put forward as well <laughs> that we really are in a matrix i have heard that opinion before and now you have me thinking about uh, that old movie demolition man with sylvester sloan and sandra bullock yeah like you know i mean I don't know what's the, you know, like what the future holds. It's just for me, I actually don't like for me, I found and maybe I will change my mind with the technology coming out. But I found virtual world really lags if real life is going well. I I find I get drawn in more so if real life sucks. Pardon my French, but that well, my, well, my thing now is with, with virtual reality as a technology, you know, you can do anything. You can jump out of an airplane. You can go on a roller coaster. You can, you can have, you know, you can have virtual sexual relations if you want to with, you know, and you can do all kinds of things. Well, the know, VR is quite, now. yes, but virtually what I'm out. saying is until it gets to a point where it's, where you're actually like like I was pointing out earlier where like you and I could be sitting in the same room yes. doing the show and it will feel just as normal like, as it does now then you're then you're like and and again it's going to get to that I have no doubt that it's going to get oh, to it that will. point it will. but I'm I'm just saying but my big question is what happens when it does get to that point what kind of a society are we going to be what's going to be the preferred method and what's going to keep us from from drifting along that line and not knowing well, that's, the difference yeah. anymore. It's going to be so disorienting. I mean, if it's any, like I'm saying right now, it's kind of in, in its infancy stages now, and it's all already very, very compelling. But if It's you, very real. But if you take it out of those infancy stages and it actually gets to a point where it will rival your perception of reality as you know it now, I mean... I, I can't I have to question like and it's like what Bay Logan was saying about you know the the direction that we're moving in is being connected going to be more important to people than living in the real world which it actually already is now with some of the examples that he was providing earlier so I you know mm-hmm. I'm just I, I I'm just questioning that given the fact that I am such a huge fan of virtual reality in general i think that's a great technology and it's only well, going to get great better so yeah I did you have ever uh just the last movie i want to mention that kind of is on the same plane uh did you ever see the movie with bruce willis it, i don't think it did very well it was called surrogates yes i did yes where it's like you know I've where it's going to be to the point where i'm going to we're all going to be so afraid of going out in real life because we have everything at our disposal at home that we actually you know, we send oh, yeah. virtual you'll, you'll do cells your job. out. You'll do job. your job. Well, think about it. You'll do your job from where you are. It'll just be you'll be in a virtual environment doing your job. You'll. It's the same. Yes. And everything. And everything is is mobile now. Everything is. You know, again, because we live in such a wildly connected world. There's anything yes. that that you can accomplish so, remotely. So what what is the What's yeah, going to be so, the draw like, to go out into the world? Like, if you want to be 
in a spaceship and be flying around leisurely, flying around Mars in your spare time. There's not going to be anything to stop you from doing that. And, and what's so, going to yeah, make you exactly. want to come back from... People are going to be having their holiday parties and stuff on Mars. and going to be celebrating New Year's on the moon. And I mean, yes. it just, to me, it's like... It's so I have to ask: Is it a distraction to keep us away from what the what the real issues of society are, or is it going to draw us in closer as a society because it's going to be so much easier for us to connect? If for if you use Facebook as an example now, where we were talking about uh, instant gratification, is it the same? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the same kind of thing in your opinion? Virtually, when now, now, except it's going to be better because you'll have all these social media, have all these friends, and you'll actually be able to actually be in, able to interact with physically without actually having to go to them or without them actually having to go to you. They really yeah. will be going to you, but they won't be going to you. That's the bizarre thing about it. You're yeah, just, I just don't know. I just, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's because, you know, as we grow older, we seem to gravitate towards what we feel is our time. So, like, you know, like, I mean, if you talk to people, like, who are in their 70s now, the 50s was the best time ever. Sure. You know, sure. You, you talk to people who are born in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s was awesome. Like, exactly. you know, I just kind of wonder if it's, it's, it's just our natural progression for age to be, you know, like, where I grew up was the best and what's coming is fearful and scary or is it going to actually like you said bring us all closer together I yeah, mean it, I, it have the reverse I don't know effect? I, I mean it, I, I'm kind of thinking that it may have the reverse effect yeah I that, do say, too. social media is having on the world now where it's like oh well everybody's tied to their phones they're glued to their tablets they're glued to this they're glued to it now because of the nature of the way that we are connected now. But when you're able to be connected in a way where you are able to be physically, actually physically around people, just in a connected way. And yes, I don't, I don't know. I I, mean, because I I always do worry that people, people deep down know it's not real. And therefore, like we were talking with Bay earlier about the negative comments, like, you know, to actually come back and say his movie's stupid. Okay, that's not constructive. That's not anything. You're trolling, right? So I just, I don't know if it's going to take trolling to a whole new level because I certainly don't know if I would present myself to you in the exact fashion I'm in now. If I could nip and tuck and tweak (laughs) before I go sit on that virtual couch with you. I'm pretty sure we'll get to a point where we can... For example, that 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 chat uh, platform that you and I that you and I met on that 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 IMVU that we used to talk about in Cyber Love Talk all the time, the yeah. idea that you could that you could actually in the virtual world, of course, you'll be able to maybe change your appearance or make adjustments or whatever. But I I would kind of I would kind of think that the idea would be you could theoretically just go into the virtual world as yourself if you want it to be. It'd but be the same as you human, were, but there's going to have yeah. people that but are going nature. to change those va- yeah. are going to have those vanities and are going to have those hang-ups and are going to change certain things to tailor whatever you know agenda that they may have 
going into that going into well, that situation. It will anybody be real when they're in the virtual world in well, that that's manner? That's what I mean. Exactly. Like if you even if you take the the surrogates movie with Bruce Willis and his wife, like they show them both as, you know, their surrogates and they show them both as real people and it's absolutely like, you know, they're 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 declining they're you know like they're gonna be 60 70 years old in some of the scenes and you're just like but their surrogates are 20 years old with like i just wonder if it's going to even make social shaming worse that's what i worry about the trolling well, will well, become well, yeah. worse well, well, but, but wait a minute though in in a virtual world like that in, in virtual reality you will you can make yourself if you can make yourself physically appealing regardless of your age you're going to have an awfully lot of really old people being you know 21 and full of fun again you're going to have all of that because you're going to have that you're going to where you're going to be able to say well it doesn't matter what i look like on the outside world be in the outside world because all that matters is i'm here and when i'm in here with you or i'm in here with whomever i'm in here with they know me and i know them and it's every if everybody looks beautiful you won't have any of that because there won't be a need for it because it'll yeah, be yeah but that but that kind of makes me sad in a way too like i think i think like there are there are more things to look at in life than just the superficial oh, oh, yeah. beauty but, but, of but a my, my thing is when you're going in okay so when you're going into the virtual world and you're hanging out with somebody and you're physically with them and your brain believes that it's real you're going to be more you're going to be more compelled by their personality and who they are Versus how yeah, they everyone's look. pretty because everybody's going to be pretty. So there's not going to be yeah. any. Yeah, no one's so going to make themselves. Nobody's going to make themselves look horrendous or make themselves look absolutely horrible, unless, like you said, it's 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 going to be an idea of like say virtual trolling, where people will go in there making themselves look as hideous as they possibly but, can to f- mess with other people. But the idea would be that if you're actually there socially and you're communicating with someone on that level you're doing so in a way that you're getting to know them or not necessarily getting to know them but communicating on a on a more you know um social level in terms of you you care about what they're saying they're important to you you're important to them like you and i we could have this conversation on a couch in a studio somewhere and it would be yeah. no different. It would be no different than what we do now. What we do every, what we do every Tuesday. Well, that's just because we know each other very well. Right. I think. I think you know, if you didn't know each other very well, being on a couch with the body language and everything else, you 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 would definitely get more insight but i guess the the trick will be is if you can live in the moment like you know for example um my parents take great joy in hanging out with my kids like their grandkids right Right. like absolutely and and that's something that people will kind of push aside to say oh i'm gonna pretend i'm 20 and hang out online you know like it's just if you could convince yourself that that's the reality and you're living in the moment then you'll be happy if you know it's a bunch of, you know, BS, so to speak. Well, you're not going to be, be happy, right? That, like that's going to be trick. Can you fool the mind? If you're, if it gets to the point where it is convincing enough, where you are literally seeing no difference between when you are in your real world versus or outside world versus virtual world, because the virtual world will essentially be a separate plane that you can do anything in. 
I, I yeah. think you'll I think you'll I think you'll be okay as long as people you know can find a balance between the two because I don't that like... would scare me I think I'd be like the Matrix is I, I I am one of those people oh yeah unfortunately I'm born too late or born too early <laughs> pardon me I would totally be like am I in a pod somewhere yeah. because really if I embrace that virtual world like it doesn't matter if I'm in a house or I'm in a you could put me in a shed, you know. Like it really right, doesn't right. It matter. does not really matter where you are because, to you, your brain is going to believe that you're in the Bahamas somewhere, sipping on a mai tai. There's yeah, exactly. No, there's no. There's nothing to to prevent you from feeling like you're somewhere, and that's going to be the trick of it. Once yeah, you know that, people can people can come home from work and go on vacation in the virtual world, and it'll just be like. A whole other life. I mean, again, this, this, this really is. Let's go to well, this really is to me. This kind of like really is the is like the holodeck from Star Trek: The Next Generation come to life is essentially what this is. And and I, you know, and I think there are positives yeah. and negatives. But you know what? We'll have to talk about it on another show because we've yes. got to wrap things up now. But I do want to thank everybody for listening in, and once again, thank you to our guest, Bay Logan, for spending so much time with us tonight on the Zod Rider Show. And we will be back next time. Thank you for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Zod Rider Show on psn-radio.com. Good night, everyone. Good night, Victoria. Good night.